And because we are talking about Ananias and Sapphira, I have extra giving envelopes. They'll be up here. I'm just saying, just in case. Um, so. I am joking, but if you need one, they're, they're up here. So before we get into our whole passage tonight, we're continuing in Matthew 4, and then we'll finish out in chapter 5. But I actually just wanted to read the first verse of the section we're going to be looking at tonight. <clears throat> verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. I just wanted to say that because that was sort of the heart behind <clears throat> having our family meeting is this idea of all of us being of one heart, being of one soul. I wanted to come together and I uh, really appreciated our meeting and um, I'm sure many, many of you were, were there. If you weren't there, you missed out because it was a really neat time to get on the same page, to really th be thinking through the same things and uh, we're able to talk through a few things. I'm obviously not going to try to recap the entire meeting, but some things that we talked about. Talked about communication at Refuge and talked about how we all make decisions here. Not just the elders, but also ministry leads and deacons and core team meeting and all those different types of things. So we talked about that. We did talk about mission and vision, and that's one of the things that I think we're, we're really kind of wanting to highlight is that aspect, there's a few different things. That, that was definitely something as to, I think for unity's sake, and we did talk about unity as well, to make sure that we're all on the same page, to make sure that we're heading towards the same direction, the same goal. And so we did have some time talking about that. A um, couple of detail things. We did talk about the building, and um, we're here. So that's the first, first part of that. But, and, I, and just in saying that we're here, Saying for, for this season, for right now, while we are walking through vision, mission, some of these other things, and, and really trying to, to see where the Lord is leading us for the moment, we're, we're here. The Lord has us here, and we have a really amazing opportunity to be here. And so one of the things we want to think through is how can we use this time that we're here on the Santa Rosa Babel campus to really maximize what the Lord might be leading us to do. So we really want to um, be thinking through that. And also, we want to kind of settle in. We want this to to feel like home. And so there's, there's going to be some cool things. We talked about not making it feel so much like we move in every Sunday. And so actually Santa Rosa Bible is going to be making a spot for us, which I know anyone who has to push the cart is very helpful for, or have, very happy for that. It's going to be very helpful for us to really feel like we're here. And we're here to, to, uh, to be here for this season. Right? And so if we are, we're going to maximize our time and those types of things. Talked about sorting table. That was already kind of highlighted. I did want to point out, I was telling Naomi, in that picture, those avocados look really weird. So I don't know who's doing the picture. We need to update that, but that was something I just highlighted for myself. Um, but look at the Church Center app if you do want to sign up for that. And one of the big things that we kind of took away from, at least I did, is just this idea of us all being together and praying. So one of the things that we're, we're doing and we're moving forward with, and hopefully you have already done this if you were at the meeting, but setting up a timer to go off some kind, some kind of an alarm, so that we're all praying at the same time at 4 p.m. Personally, I set one for 355 so that I can actually pray at four. 
for my message. So if that's helpful for you, that's a pro tip. But that's something we want to do. Is we want to be praying together, and there's something about all of us like knowing we're all praying at the same time. It's kind of a cool thing. So that's something we really want to be leaning into and, and, and praying about. What, what should we do as, as a body? What, what, are we, what are we really here for? And I know that those are really big questions, and it's not like we're totally lost. But the point is, is for us to be in the same, uh, in the same mindset, and just like we're seeing here in verse 32, that we're of one heart and one soul. And that's really, I think, the main objective. So am I forgetting anything? You good? All right. Well, good. And you know what happens when I look at my watch? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. But we are going to be going back into chapter 4. I know we read in chapter 5, and that's going to be where we're ending up. But we did want to back up a little bit into chapter 4. So Brent stopped at verse 31. Verse 32, going into chapter 5, it's, sort of the, it's the same story. It's sort of the setup. And chapter 5, 1 through 11 is sort of the, the payoff. It kind of feels weird to call it that because of the nature of the story, but sort of where we are. But looking at this, um, in chapter 4, and it, and it feels weird because we've, we've taken so long to get through chapter 4. It's all really, even going back into chapter 3, kind of all the same event. It's kind of the same thing is, is going through. So we had the, the healing of the man in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we had some of the ramifications for that and also for the teaching that was going on in the temple. So we had those things happening and then um, their subsequent arrest and standing before the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> we had last week is a talk of essentially the response to that, the response to living out this, this kind of persecution. Now, it was, it was just Peter and John, but they sort of got to get their, their feet wet, as it were, this is uh, sort of representative of the first real opposition to the gospel that we have recorded. Before this, it, we're, we're still talking about setting things up and <clears throat> the uh, number increasing daily, the, you know, the apostles teaching, those types of things, what they started to, to do, but this is really the first major opposition. To have two of the apostles arrested was kind of a big deal. And so in that passage that we looked at last week, we sort of saw their response to it. And I think we could look back to see if you just want to encapsulate it. They responded in praise. That they were experiencing this type of opposition. And they also prayed for boldness. And I think that's a really important thing to, to highlight because that really leads us into this next section here in chapter 4. So hopefully... All of this intro has been long enough for you to grab your Bible, turn to chapter 4, because we're going to look at verse 32 here. We already looked at this verse, but we're going to do it again. Verse 32, now the member, I'm sorry, the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. We'll go to verse 33 too. <clears throat> And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I kind of want to back up there. To look at verse 32, there are a couple things noted. They were of one heart and one soul, and then it starts to say that nothing that they had, they, they withheld from each other, right? 
So right there, it's, it's, it's interesting because this is the setup that you have, at least from Jesus' perspective, on the greatest commandment. These are the categories that we saw Jesus give, right? Heart, soul, mind, and strength, or physicality. And here we see them actually living that out. This is something that they were stepping into in all those different areas that they were supposed to love the Lord their God. They were doing that. And it's a pretty special thing. And it led them to the actions that they then exhibited, that they didn't withhold the things that they had. They, they, had, it held, they had their hand held open. And they gave to each other. <clears throat> Skipping down to verse 34, it says, there was not a needy person among them. So there was no one who was in Need because they were all living out this loving the Lord, heart, soul, mind, strength, right? That, that whole concept. They were incorporating that with that second command of loving their neighbor. They were fulfilling the things they were supposed to be doing. Now, putting this together with what they had just experienced, one of the things that they were praying for was boldness. And so you kind of have to think about this for, for, for a second, is how do you go from experiencing that level of, of persecution, having their leaders arrested, and we say, like, well, it's not as bad as it's going to be. It's like, yeah, but if, if like, a couple of, of us were arrested, held overnight, and had to answer for it, and we were let go, I mean, that would still be kind of a, kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a, a, a little bit of a shake-up, and it's almost like, when you go to the hot tub and you, you kind of put your foot in, you're like, ooh, that's kind of hot. Okay, if this is their first because as, as we continue to look in Acts, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. There's going to be more. This is that first, but, the, but that first test came. Peter, John, stand before the Sanhedrin, and they came back and had the right attitude. They responded properly. They responded correctly. And what it, what it did was it <clears throat> allowed them in, in unity to see, hey, we're going to move forward. We need more boldness. And I think very much in response to that, you have this next verse here, verse 33. And the great power of the apostles, I'm sorry, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now I think as we look at that, the rest of this story is in response to that. And it gets lost. It's lost because a husband and wife died in church. And I think we kind of forget the thing that actually kind of launched this whole thing. We get distracted a little bit because that's a weird thing. I'm gonna, I'll just say it, it's weird. We forget that in response to them praying for boldness, the apostles began to share the testimony of the resurrection. And I think everything that happens after this is an outpouring of that. This is, well, he is our cornerstone, but this doctrine is the cornerstone of our understanding of all of Christianity. Without the resurrection, we truly have nothing. This was, this was the core of their assembly. And the giving that happens is, in, I think, in response to that sort of understanding. So the resurrection, 
if you think about it, it's not just a monumentous event. It is a complete game changer. It completely changes the paradigm. Everything changes because of the resurrection. It's wonderful that we get to this passage here right before next week where we get to actually celebrate that. I mean, we can celebrate it every week, but you know what I mean. So in, in, in looking at this, the, the resurrection really is not just the cornerstone of our own faith, but it really is the thing that actually drives us to do and to accomplish what Christ has called us to do. Just a, a quick hop over to Corinthians 15, and I promise I won't get stuck here, even though this is one of my favorite passages here. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 classically has to do with the resurrection. Looking at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a pretty big deal. If Christ is not raised, this is the most fundamental thing for our faith, not just as part of our confession. We don't just say it as part of the creed. It's not just for us to say. But it really has real teeth. It really should lead us to live differently. So, so think about Peter and John. I'm going back to Acts now. Think about Peter and John being arrested having to stand before the Sanhedrin. I'm sure they didn't know what to expect. Well, think about it. What should they have expected? What was the, what was the uh, end result of Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin? It's crucifixion. So I think they may have had a little bit of an inkling of what might happen from the Sanhedrin. But, what happened to Jesus? Did he stay dead? No, he didn't. He was resurrected. So in light of that, they could stand before the Sanhedrin, and if they died, what could they look forward to? The resurrection. It's kind of a big deal. Because if you think about it, it removes the mystery around that. It removes the fear around that, because what's the worst thing that could happen? If, if they're killed, they then wait for the resurrection. There's really nothing that they could do. If you go back to it and think about it, the fact that Christ has been raised is freedom. It is absolute and total freedom. What it also means is that it changes how we interact with our stuff. You see, then our, all of our temporal life, we wake up, we do stuff, go to sleep, that's pretty much it, right? But that, and then we do it again the next day, those sort of things. Now, now we say, you know what? All of that is us just waiting for the resurrection. 
waiting for Christ's return for the kingdom and the resurrection. So why not do something awesome? Why does it have to be day in, day out? Go to sleep, wake up, do it again, lather, rinse, repeat. Why do we, why do we make it that way? In light of the resurrection, we can, can kind of go crazy. Not really. Not really crazy. We can feel free to do what Christ has called us to do. And I think that's what's starting to happen here. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So I think there's a few things that's going on here. Number one, in light of the resurrection, does holding on and hoarding your own resources make a ton of sense? Because if we're raised, then what's going to happen with that? Well, nothing. It's kind of a waste. Why was I hanging on to this? Why are we building bigger barns? Why are we storing all these things up? Why? And there's a lot to be said about those who have resources, those who are poor, those who are in poverty and serving those who can't serve you back. We could go into a whole discussion of the orphan and the widow, the fact that we give to them, and that's the, the height of, as I said, it's of religion because they can't serve you back. You're not getting anything back from them, right? You give, you give to them, it's, it's never going to have something in return. You're not lobbying for something to get a, a, something back to yourself. In fact, you don't even get a tax deduction. I guess today you would if you gave to an orphanage or something, but you get what I mean. There's nothing coming back to you. It's pure giving. Which could sound scary if not for the resurrection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a few times, except for the, I'm just prompting you. I want you to say it back. But it is because of the resurrection. Giving, at this point, I think there's a hinge here. Giving changes. It then becomes about just the giving. It becomes about the people in need being provided for. So there's something that changes. This is the kingdom economy starting to come into light. I think there's there's actually more depth to it than, than even that. We'll get to that in just a second. But I want to I highlight a couple of things. I'll just say it. It may make you mad. I don't care. Um, this is not socialism. This is not, there's no, there's no higher entity telling anyone that they have to give or they have to relinquish. That's actually made it extremely clear, uh, clear in chapter 5, which we'll get to. But I also want to say that it, it, while it's pointed out that it's all private property, this also doesn't highlight capitalism. Because what they're selling is their farms. Like it says property, but it, it, that's what it is. It's farmland. It's things that have an extreme value. So you could almost say, why didn't they just hang on to it and maybe just give the food or give the proceeds or give something else? Because isn't that smarter? Isn't that wiser to hang on to something with a long-term effect so that you can give more, you can give better later. That wasn't the point. People got to eat today. So we got to give this thing up today. That's very anti-capitalist if you want to say it that way. There's no political statements being made here with the exception of this is all kingdom living. Different politic completely. In fact, some people would say you're being foolish. 
giving up something that has a larger value instead of hanging on, you know, hang on to it and give it. Who else, who else said something like that? Man, if we just had kept that special, what was it? Yeah, the oil. Yeah, I couldn't think of, I use this oil. The anointed Jesus with this, that's such a waste. We could have sold it and we could have fed the poor. So said Judas. Very, think, very thoughtful, very, very, you know, worried about the poor Judas was. So it's not socialism, it's not capitalism, it's kingdom economy. This is free giving. This is someone seeing someone in need and if they have something to give, they gave. And that's really the major point of that. We look at verse 36. We have an example given. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, it is also kind of funny that it's Joseph because Joseph was in scripture was also the master of saving and giving for the Egyptians. Probably not a connection there. But his name was Joseph, but he's known better by his, uh, I guess it's his nickname, his title, Barnabas, the encourager, the son of encouragement. It says that he was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and this is kind of interesting too. We won't go too deep into this, but he says he's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. And I think why that's interesting is he is, he's a Jew. He's of a very specific Jewish origin, right? Being a Levite, part of the priestly tribe, the priestly class. But then also it says that he was from Cyprus. Cyprus is not mentioned in any of the other things in Acts 2. So this is now a new area that all of a sudden you have representation in. Someone from Cyprus. The list of nations who now have representation of Christ is now growing. That's pretty cool. Pretty neat. Just put it in the category of neat. But looking at uh, a little bit here, he says, <clears throat> verse 37, so he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What I think you have here is he is the example. He's the one who came and did this. And it may have been because of this he was called the encourager. He's called the son of encouragement. Maybe, maybe this is just, he kept doing this and this was just like a really big deal. But either way, he did it in a significant enough manner that the apostles gave him a new name. He's then identified as that throughout the rest of the New Testament. He's the encourager. Why? Because he gave. And he gave big time. Right? I wish that we could just close it there. Uh, I do want to highlight one other thing, that this is not an idea, I think, that's exclusive to Acts. In Colossians chapter 1, if you look at verses, if I'm not here, yeah, starting at verse 3, we have a statement here, and I think this, this is what I think represents kind of that concept and idea moving forward from that time, which is the very beginning of the church, moving all the way through the establishment of the church throughout the Near East and around the Mediterranean. Verse 3, Colossians chapter 1, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. This is, this is Paul. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, what do you think that hope is? What do you think that hope is? 
Oh, the resurrection. Thank you very much. Because I think sometimes we would say, oh, the hope is, you know, we get to heaven, you know, we won't, won't be crying anymore. We won't have to worry about the food. We won't have to, you know, whatever. It's, it's heaven, so it's great. And I think sometimes we go like, oh, it's heaven that we're, that, that's, our, that's not our hope. What's in heaven is Christ, the risen Christ on the throne. That, he's our hope, and when he arrives, he will be bringing with him the resurrection. That's our hope. Our hope's the resurrection. It's not the rapture. The rapture is sort of like you're going on a trip somewhere you want to go. I don't know, where do you want to go? When I was a kid, it was like, oh, Disneyland. That was always the example. You go to Disneyland, and it's like being super excited for the car. Like, I'm just so excited for the car, like to get in the car. It's like, no, you're excited for the resurrection, not the method by which you get there. We're excited for the resurrection. That's what we should be excited for. Verse 5, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, for this you have heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day that you heard and you understood the grace of God in truth. What's highlighted here is, again, those three things that we just talked about. Verse 4, it says, faith in, faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, and because of the hope that's laid up for you. Faith, hope, love. Same, same things that we've been talking about. It's just this is the laid out portion of it. This is the love portion of it. It is in the same vein of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now we add to that, as Paul highlights in Corinthians, this is what love is. Right? He explains about love, but he says these are, the, these are the three things to keep in mind. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is, is love. These, these concepts, these ideas, these aren't new. This isn't new to Paul in Acts. This isn't new to Luke writing this, these are the same concepts laid down by Jesus Christ that we might live by them. Chapter 5, verse 1, but, there's the narrative hinge here, it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So it's, it's important to realize, and I think sometimes the chapters do us a disservice because we'll start at chapter five and think we're starting a new thought. We're not. This is in the exact same thought that we were just in. Remember, Barnabas, son of encouragement. But, so it's just continuation. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. So here is the problem. We normally have a problem when it highlights the fact that they only brought part, or there's something missing, or it wasn't all of it. And there are a few examples that we can point to, and none of them are good. First one is in Joshua chapter 7. I mean, there's more of this, but Joshua chapter 7, where you have a man named Achan, Decides that oh, I'm gonna. I know I'm told that I'm not supposed to keep anything from the city, but I'm gonna keep some, and he puts some in his tent, which means the army of Israel in the next battle of Ai or Ai, they lost. 
because they were disobedient. So he kept back apart. Not a great thing. And they also stoned him and his family, so bad stuff. So he hid it. That was his thing. He hid it. Saul is another example. 1 Samuel 15. Go up against the uh, Amalekites. And they were told to destroy everything and everybody and all the stuff and all the things. Did they? No. They kept, well, first of all, kept King Agag, which Samuel takes care of later. But they kept back some of the choice animals from the herds. And I don't know this was really his intention or not, but when he was caught, Saul says, well, I was gonna, this is to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel makes the claim, it's like, it's better to obey than to keep back and to do this. And so, yeah, Saul kept back part and he justified it. That was his, that was his deal. The third one's a much bigger one. We'd spent... A long time. How long did we spend in Daniel? Long enough, right? Long enough. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. The Lord reveals to him why they're still in captivity, why they were brought out, brought out of the, the uh, land, why they're in captivity, and why they have to wait 70 years. 70 years is the amount of time. And as we went through that, we... we we talked about the fact that it was most likely having to do with those Sabbath years. Do you remember, anyone remember this? We talked about the Sabbath years. The fact, you know what the Sabbath years are? Glad you asked. Sabbath years, we know what the Sabbath is, right? In fact, a lot of times where Jesus has to reteach what the Sabbath really is because the Pharisees and the religious leaders had kind of twisted the understanding of what Sabbath was. Well, we understand the seven days and the seventh day. Well, for the Sabbath years, you've got uh, every seventh year was a Sabbath year. You're supposed to let the land lie fallow, but you don't do anything. Now, what, what do you think is scary about an agrarian society that decides for one whole year we're not going to plant anything? I know we're not farmers, but... What's the scary part of that? Nothing grows. Nothing grows. We won't have food. And so it's addressed and said, yeah, you can just trust the Lord for this. It was meant to be a practice. Guess how many times they did this? Zero. Okay. Well, keeping with the seven motif, when you've had seven Sabbath years, then you have a special year after that. Does anyone know what that is? Jubilees. What happens during the year of Jubilee? All, yes, all those things. Um, what happens in the year of Jubilee, and it's found in Leviticus 25. You didn't think we are going to be in Leviticus tonight, did you? Here we are in Leviticus. But Leviticus 25 talks about what you do during Jubilee. At that time, what had happened for the 49 years or 50 years before if you had, you know, you fell on hard times, you had to sell your land, and you had to move, you had to leave, they were able to go back to their ancestral lands and re-inhabit their lands. They were allowed to, at that point, if you had slaves, you were, you, they had to be released. It was, it, was, it was a 
big resetting of the tribal lands and the times. Debts were forgiven. It's a great time. Debts were forgiven. You just like don't have to pay. And there's even rules around that. Like you can't like incur the debt the year before. And it, so, you know, it made it fair and boring for most people because then they don't read it. But the year of Jubilee, the point was this was the year. This was the year of the Lord's here. And guess how many times they celebrated Jubilee? Well, if you don't celebrate the Sabbath years, you don't celebrate the year of Jubilee. So what did the Lord do? Did exactly what he promised. He judged them, took them all out of the land, and for seven years, which were all the years that they missed, the land lay fallow. The Lord gets what he wants. And then they would come back that 70th year. Now, just by quality of them being gone for so long and then returning, guess what they had to do when they tried to figure out, well, where's everybody supposed to live? They kind of reset everything. Everybody had to go back to their own lands. And if you, if you went on your way there, I mean, these weren't, you know, these were not the same situations you had before. And so you had people that were actually living that out just being made to do that. Jesus talks about something pretty cool. I mean, he always does. Luke chapter 4, when he goes back to his hometown, he goes to the synagogue and he goes up to teach and he says something interesting. This is a quotation from Isaiah. He goes up and, which is really cool. Side note, side quest for just a second. They would just go orderly, in an orderly manner through the readings. This was like an orderly thing, right? So in all of the time that they had been reading through the scrolls and all this stuff, it all linked up so that when Jesus came, the next passage they're supposed to read was exactly this one here. That's pretty neat. Put that in the category of that's pretty neat. But he goes up and he reads this part of Isaiah 61 where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the uh, sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this verbiage sounds so much like Jubilee, I don't know if you can really miss it. So Jesus declares, right after he said that, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So you could ask, why? Why do you have all of these examples? Why do you have the example of Sabbath years? Why do you have the example of Jubilees? Do you think it was an end in and of itself? I do not think so. I think it's pointing out, pointing towards a shadow of the resurrection. I think in light of the resurrection, what then takes place is when they are actually accomplishing what Jesus told them to do, the greatest commandments, they naturally live out the year of Jubilees. Without even really trying, they're fulfilling in a microcosm what the kingdom of God is going to be. Because when you look at all the teaching around the, the year of Jubilee and Sabbaths and what we're looking forward to, we're looking forward to the end where we see the ultimate fulfillment of all these things. But just like we've talked about before with the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, we, 
We live in a kingdom that's not like any kingdom that's here. Kingdoms here have borders. Kingdoms here have limitations. We are of a kingdom that has no physical limitations, that is instead represented as the area of authority of our king. And guess where that kingdom is? It's all of it, right? And so we are we're waiting for the physical fulfillment of that, but until that happens, we live in light of that. What the church was doing in this assembly was living out these principles. And they were doing it effortlessly. Let's go back to Acts 5. Here come uh, Ananias and Sapphira following in the example of Barnabas, sold a field. It says in verse 2 that they kept some back. And, and it highlights the fact that it's with her knowledge. They did it together. They schemed to do this. Kept back some for himself. Some of the proceeds, they, they only brought part. They laid at the apostles' feet. Look at verse 3. But Peter said to Ananias, <laughs> what a way to greet someone. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And good morning. Immediately, didn't even get to utter the lie, didn't even get to say anything, just immediately found out. And it's interesting that it's Peter who says that they're Satan, they're the adversary. What are, what, what are they the adversary of, right? What, it doesn't call them that, but what is this the adversary of? This is the adversary of the actual realistic impacts of the resurrection. You aren't living in light of this. <clears throat> it says that Satan has filled their heart and they've lied to the Holy Spirit and they, kept, they have kept back some. While it remained, this is what's interesting, verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? This, this is the proof that this was not something that everyone was forced to do. They said, you didn't have to do this. This was just your land. But we can see in comparison with Barnabas, they probably saw Barnabas do this and they say, I, we want to have this kind of, I want a nickname from the apostles. I want this kind of thing. So it's almost like maybe I can buy my way into like a higher position here. Maybe I can find some way to, to, to buy this favor, which might sound, oh, that's crazy. But we see examples of this in the New Testament later. We see Simon the magician tried to do exactly the same thing. I mean, it's just that, that idea. Oh, I'm going to pay into this and I'll be a part of this thing. He says, while, while it was unsold, it was yours. You didn't have to do this. And once it was sold, you didn't have to give it. But it was the fact that they, in line with what Barnabas had done, they were doing the same thing and to a different end. Because then they say, oh, I'm not really going to give all of it. So going back to the examples that we had before, this is exactly the same vein of thinking. For Achan, I'm just going to give part of it. For Saul, I'm just going to give this part's the, the nice stuff. With the nation itself. The Sabbath years and with the Jubilee. 
they weren't doing what they were supposed to do in light of what the Holy Spirit was leading the body to do. So we started out this whole thing saying they were of one, one mind, one soul. Or sorry, one, one heart, one soul, right? They were, all, they were all together moving forward in this. It seems like Ananias and Sapphira blinked. They thought about it. Why, uh, looking at verse 4, why is it that you've con, uh, contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Efficient. And that, that is the punishment for not fulfilling these things in the Old Testament. Was death. You looked at the curses for not fulfilling the promises that they should have, and they, that, that's what you would get. So it's not out of the realm of of. It seems harsh to us, but that was the, that was the, uh, the judgment. Verse 6, I love verse 6. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. They made the youth group guys do this. <laughs> we haven't had a dead guy in here before. You guys, you guys deal with it. So instead of stacking chairs, they had to take him out. Verse 7 through the, the end, we get, we get kind of the other half. After an interval of about three hours, wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And in my sanctified imagination, I'm thinking, like, everyone's sitting here, right? And we know what happened a few hours before, and she walks in, and the whole place goes quiet. She walks up. Everybody's like, does she not know what's going on? Like, I don't know. In my mind, I'm like, oh, this is, I don't even know if it was, like, a full big meeting or who was there. We know there's more than one. You know, it wasn't just Peter there. There's more people there. Obviously, you had the youth group guys ready to take her out too. But the, uh, like, how weird is that? Like, what's going to happen here? Kind of the same thing. Peter said, tell me, wh- tell me whether you sold the land for so much. <laughs> he just gets right to it. Sorry, I breathed in the mic. He just gets right to it. Hey, how much did you sell this for? <laughs> I just want to confirm. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. The youth group guys are right out there. I'm to take you out. Immediately she fell down at the feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things couple things. I want to get a couple things kind of out of the way before we kind of talk through this. We, we've kind of talked about them and what they did and, and, and some of the motivations and the judgment. I think this is highlighted and made a big deal because we don't normally have people just dropping dead in church. That's not totally normal, at least not f- for, for these reasons. And I think sometimes we try to go to this passage to make it prescriptive, right? Like the envelopes are up here. Right? It's, like it's like it's about the giving. It's not just about the giving. There's a whole lot of other things that happen around the giving. The point was the heart behind it, and the point was what the Lord was doing, what the Spirit of God was leading the church to do. The, rest, the, the whole church was of the same heart, the same mind. Ananias and Sapphira, they gave in. They gave in to temptation, and they did not do 
those things. And what's difficult is, is we don't really see examples of this continuing to take place. There may have been something that was super special happening right there in Jerusalem, and they all knew it, and they were all a part of it, just like maybe that year of Jubilees. We all know what's going on here, and those people who have resources are, are giving, and they're selling, and they're, they're, they're treating it like, yeah, we're, we're just, we're forgiving all of these debts. We're, we're giving all of this, all of this, these proceeds, and, and we're all in on this, and they wanted that without what comes with. Why? Part of it may have been fear. I think that was a big one. But it's a lot of money. We might need it. We might dare say call them wise. No wonder if we might. And that'd be sad. We're like, well, that's smart to not give all of it. Keep some of it back. They could have invested it and given more later. I mean, we might even give excuses for them. But there was something going on here that was unique because we don't really see this thing taking place. In 1 John, it talks about 1 John chapter 5. I think the times where this has come up or we've talked about it in an elders meeting or whatever, talked about this passage. John chapter 5, and we're not spending a ton of time here, but verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. This is confidence that you have toward him, that if you seek anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So that's the context. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about requesting the Lord and then within his will. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. See your brother in sin? You should pray for them. If it's a sin that doesn't lead to death. If it's a sin that leads to death, then you, you, know, you shouldn't pray for them. What? What, what is that? This deserves its own time, its own study, its own thing. Just, I mean, a couple of things. I, I don't know that this is directly talking about this with Ananias and Sapphira. One reason, in chapter 3, John talks about a specific sin and names it, just like Cain. You don't want to do this thing. Here, he could have easily said, you know, like Ananias and Sapphira, everyone knows that story, so don't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't highlight the fact that, you know, some people did this and they died. What might be in light of, what might, might be in view here is apostasy in and of itself. So someone who identified with Jesus and then goes out for whatever reason and says, nope, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't, you know, follow Jesus in, a, in sort of a public manner and then that's where they're at. And that's where they end up? That's a possibility. And that might be more fitting. It just seems very odd to have something like this where you just wouldn't be praying for them because of that. It's very interesting and it's a very odd thing, but it's normally connected between Ananias and Fire and this passage. And I just don't know that it's a direct correlation. And what I don't, what you should not do is when you come to church, be afraid that, oh, I may have done something against the Holy Spirit, I might die. 
that's not what we should be worried about. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is, is that there were people who were a part of those things, and it was, it's the Lord who was in charge of this thing. Peter didn't do anything. This is, in, if you compare this to the chapter before, the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, don't, don't, you, don't you be preaching Jesus. They said, well, we have, to, we have to do what God tells us. So, And there was no power. Sanhedrin had no power to stop them, couldn't keep them from doing it, and they said, well, we gotta do what God wants us to do. You then go to this next passage here. Ananias and Sapphira don't even say, well, Sapphira answers the question, but Ananias doesn't even say anything. And the Lord judges him. I mean, Peter knows, but Peter didn't execute judgment on him. Peter didn't do anything. It was the Lord who did that. And it says that they were stricken with fear. It wasn't, we're not afraid of Peter. We're not afraid of giving. They were afraid of, of the Lord. They were afraid, like, wow, this is serious stuff. This is a big deal. And so if them being arrested was sort of the first opposition to the gospel from without, this is kind of the first opposition from within, if you want to say. To have a group that is unified and united by the Holy Spirit, to then have Ananias and Sapphira so move against that, that the Lord deals with that. I think in a couple times we've talked about this in our elders meetings, it's the idea is like, maybe this is happening. Maybe there are people who do die and that's why. There's, there's no extra commentary to tell us like, and they went to hell. This, this may have been, you know, the Lord saying, you know, there is a judgment here and so we're just gonna remove you from the situation, if you understand what I mean. The problem is we're not given anything else. There's not much else here to give us direct connection to it. But a couple of things. The Lord is the one who has the true authority. And I think that is undisputed in these passages here. But I think what for us, like, is, are we, you know, I got, again, I got giving envelopes up here if you're feeling, feeling like the Lord's leading you. But that's not the point of the passage. The passage is, is where is the Lord leading us? Where is he moving us? The Lord takes these things seriously. So looking at this, our giving should be honest. That's one thing. But it also needs to be out of love. Not out of lobbying, not out of purchasing something, definitely not indulgences. I think we took care of that a few hundred years ago. But it should be out of love. Giving should not be out of fear. We don't hear of anyone here going like, oh my gosh, they died, here's some money. I could keep making the joke because it's a joke. It's a joke to say that I didn't give enough money and God killed me. That's, that's a crazy application to take out of this. That's, that's not the point at all. Our giving should not be out of fear, but out of excitement for the resurrection. We give because we can. If the Lord has given to you and the Lord is leading you to give, you give. If you see a need and you say, Lord, should I give? This should be part of our conversation that we have with the Lord. Part of our prayers is to say, what, what do I have? Maybe you don't have money. Maybe you don't have gold and silver, but what you have, you give, right? We already saw that example. should be in light of the resurrection. All we have is from the Lord. So in light of the resurrection, whatever the Lord has given us, he has given us to steward, which may mean to give. It may mean to save, but may mean to give. And then our giving should be honest. 
It sh and it should be, I think the one thing that Ananias and Sapphira did well, that we should give them credit for, is they talked about it. Now, they did it in a bad way, in a sinful way, right? They were conspiring. But your giving should be something that you do together. That maybe is the one redeeming thing that we got from that. I'm stretching, I know. But it's also to represent fulfilling needs in the body. Right? So there's, there's principles there too. We're a family. So what business do we have giving to someone outside of the family when there's someone in the family who's suffering, who's someone in the family who's in need? When someone here needs something, we need to do that. But secondarily too, I don't think it was, it was a guess as to who needed what. I think there's also some humility to say, I need, I need something. We see that later on where there are people saying, hey, we're, we're getting served last over here. We need some help. We'll see that with the establishment of deacons. But those, I think, are the conclusions that we can draw out for, for ourselves. But I hope no one is thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't tithe, I'm going to die. Because that's not the point. But what I think it is the point is to take these things that are going on that the Lord is doing within the church seriously and that goes back to even our family meeting. What we are here for. Why, why are we in Santa Rosa? Why are we doing the things that we do? The Lord needs to be the one who is leading us and guiding us. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a check boxes that we get to tick off when we come to church. When we do, you know, fill in the blank. That's not the point. Our giving should be honest, it should be in line with love, and it needs to be, at its core, a response to the resurrection. That we don't have to worry about where we're going to be in five years. We don't have to worry about some of those things. If the Lord is leading you to do a thing, you need to do the thing. If the Lord is leading you to give, you need to give. Is it going to cost you? Yeah. Is it going to make it difficult later? Probably. but it was the Lord who dealt that out with his servants. And so I encourage you to give out of love. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples that we have, both good and not so good. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity that you have given us. Lord, we know that we are incredibly blessed. And it's a cliched thing to say, like, oh, we're... We're in the United States and you've given us so much. But the truth is, it's, it's a reality. The fact that we're born here, that we live here, we, we do have to a level and to an extent that there are many around the world who do not. And even within our own community, there are people who need. Even within this body, there are people who need. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us, Lord, to give. Maybe, Lord, you are leading us to give more than we are. And so I do pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead and to guide us that we might, Lord, obey you in this way. Lord, I pray that, that if we are some of those who are in need, Lord, that we would bring those things up. Lord, not, not out of a um, sort of an attitude of expectancy that we have to be taken care of, but Lord, out of humility in knowing that you are the one who provides for us the bread for today. And Lord, I pray if, if need be, Lord, that we would talk with others about maybe some of these struggles, either with asking for help or in giving. Lord, I pray that you would be 
the source of or the reason for our giving. That in light of the resurrection, we would be willing, Lord, to give. That we wouldn't worry about tomorrow, just as you taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. That we wouldn't be anxious, Lord, but instead you would use us as your servants. That you would guide us, Lord, to be your hands and your feet, Lord, to be Lord, a representative of our good king. And in the kingdom and in the kingdom economy, Lord, that we would live in light of those principles. Thank you, Jesus, Lord, for saving us and for the promise of the resurrection. And as we go into this season, this, this Passion Week, Lord, that we would remember that as we lead up to the celebration of the resurrection, Lord, that you, you, Lord, in your sacrifice and in your resurrection have given us Lord, a pattern for living. I pray that we would live in light of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.